welcome to Roar with Sparks. How loud is your roar? I am your host, Kristen Sparks. I am the CEO and founder of Roar Inc. Voices Our Power, communications and connections company. I am a corporate and personal growth facilitator. I am an infinite possibilities and certified success principles trainer, currently working on my master certification for the success principles and my BVC coaching certification. I am a facilitator, author, speaker, and thought leader. I am a cancer, broken heart, body, and soul thriver. 2022 is a power year and all about living our best life. I may live with chronic pain, but I find joy in every day in the act of getting up and having a new day filled with infinite options, opportunities, and possibilities of success. Roar with Sparks, How Loud Is Your Roar is all about you. Come join the conversation as we gather weekly to share wisdom, insight, and value, learning from and giving to each other and our special guest, sending our vibration higher and charging each other up all while having fun. Can't wait to see you here. How loud is your roar? Hi, and welcome to Roar with Sparks. I am Kristen Sparks, your host, and I am just amazed to have this wonderful guest today, Jeff Johnson, correct, Jeff? Yep. want to make sure I've got your last name. Yeah, there's a T. There's kind of a hidden T in there. <laughs> he is living undeterred, and he and I met through a mutual friend on mental health and getting it out into the public, how important it is to really take care of our mental health. Jeff, please take it away. Give us some background and tell us what you're going to be doing today and from here on, what's your mission in this world. Kristen, I'm really honored to have met you and I'm humbled to be on the show. This um, mental health journey that I've been kind of thrust into was something I really paid little attention to most of my life. I was like a lot of people. I was focused on building up my net worth and focusing on traveling. And I was coaching my kids and focusing on my marriage and just you know the normal distractions we have as humans that we don't take the time to really kind of pause and be a grateful for what we have and, and be hypersensitive and aware of what's going on around us and within us simultaneously. So, you know, I'm just kind of riding along, you know, age 50 running an investment company that I started when I was 23, I had nine financial advisors in our firm and seven full-time staff. And we managed at one point up to almost $700 million, which is bigger than most banks. So I was kind of sitting pretty good. I was 50 and sitting on the top of the mountain there, pat myself on the back every day, you know, but underneath that, I was an alcoholic since eighth, ninth grade, but I was functional. I mean, I, I could drink and it was wine mostly and go to bed and get up and I could work. And as I got older, I noticed I put on a little more weight. I got a little sluggish. I was a compulsive gambler as well for probably 20 years of my life as an investment advisor, which is not something you brag about. And so, you know, like every family behind the curtain, we had problems. My wife and I had a great marriage. We never fought. Even when we both drank, we just were tired drunks and we'd have deep conversations and philosophy and politics. And then we just go to bed. Pretty uneventful. And then you know, as life does, when you're on top of the perch of life, it uh, tends to humble you. And on October 4th, 2016, everything changed. Oh, just sense chills, Jeff. One of the things that I started this month, um, this is November, but I started a 21-day challenge on self-love, self-care. 
it's all about taking care of yourself so that you can then be, take care of those that are around you. Because if you're not taking care of you, you're no good for anybody else. I am humbled by your story. I'm humbled by the opportunity to share the living undeterred and what that is all about. Can you give us you know, a little bit about that? So on that fateful day, it was 6.30 in the morning and I had the coffee in one hand, newspaper in the other, dropping my son off to play golf. He had districts that day. He was 15. Youngest son was 13, oldest son, 23. My wife, Prudence, married 21 years. And I got that call. You know, you get that call a few times in your life when you know that on the other line is something horrific. I knew from this person getting the call at this early in the morning that it was something bad. And I looked Ian in the eye. Ian's right in front of me. And he remember, he's only 15. All I remember is I didn't tell him I loved him. I just got in my car and thought, how am I going to tell my wife that our son is dead? And <sighs> I was informed that they found our oldest son, Seth, dead in a hotel room less than a mile from where my son was going to golf that day for districts. And so as my middle son was walking to the first tee, with his golf club in his hand, looking around for his mom and dad, we were at the hotel with the yellow tape. Right. And so that... Uh, transcended me into something that I have no words for. I can't explain. I can focus on some of the pain and suffering, but where I elevated to is something that I still have a hard time grasping. But I knew in that moment that I had to tell my wife driving. I just turned my back on Ian. I got in the car. I didn't tell Ian anything that happened because I didn't think it'd be fair to him and his team on that special day that they've worked so hard for to be um, burdened, the, the news that his older brother died. So I thought I would just save that till down the road. And so I got home and came around the corner and you can imagine my wife getting ready to go watch our son golf and my hands were trembling and I couldn't talk and I just muttered, you know, Seth is dead. And um, we both hit the ground and uh, we drove up to the hotel room and this is all written about in my book. I wrote a book about a year later called um, This One's For You, An Inspirational Journey Through Addiction, Death and Meaning. I wanted to make it a book when you put it down and you felt like getting up and making a difference in your life and in other people's lives. It's not a sad book at all. But on that day, I knew the two boys were coming home. So I dreaded immensely having to tell them that their older brother, Seth, was dead. And Ian was 15, Roman was 13, and they got home and they sat down and they could tell something was wrong because my wife was on my right and the two boys on the couch. I said, boys, I've got some really bad news for you. Seth is dead. And the most amazing thing, my middle son, after a few seconds, looked up and said, how do you die, dad? Drugs? He knew at 15 that that's what took his older brother because Seth had died at the end of his six-year battle with uh, addiction, substance use, distress. I would throw in mental health, all that. Uh, this started with Adderall. I actually started with Stratera in fifth grade, which I write about in my book. And we had to unpack all that. And um, I stood up and told the boys. And again, I don't know where this came from, Kristen, but I knew I had a moment of in my life, you only have a few, arguably maybe two or three, where the next words you utter set the table for the rest of your life. It sets the precedent for how the family is going to react. And I knew I had to say something very impactful. So I stood up and I said, and this became a chapter in my book called The Two Roads. I said, boys, we have one of two roads to go down. We have one road of anger, despair, and hatred. We'll become alcoholics and addicts ourselves. Or we have a road of inspiration and motivation. And this can be the single greatest moment in our lives to make a difference for us and others. I'm on the second road. I ask you to join me. 
And um, they did, but I didn't. The next year and a half, my wife and I drank seven days a week. And um, I didn't go to work. I told my team, I'm not coming in. I need time. I need a year off. And um, I just drank pretty much any moment of any day I could drink. And I just phoned all my negative friends in my head. And I said, hey, come on over. Let's have a big pity party. Let's, um, let's get drunk together. And my wife and I both did that. And then on December 24th, 2017, I looked in the mirror and just said, I'm done. Tired of just always saying tomorrow's going to be that day. Today is tomorrow. Today's that day. And I haven't had a drink since. It's been the easiest thing I've ever done in my life. I don't call myself sober because that implies I'm in a fight. I just choose not to drink. So my gambling was the same way. I just one day decided I wanted to quit and I quit. But I can't say it helped my wife. Uh, on June 29th of 2021, I buried her at the age of 46, married 21 years, the most beautiful human I ever met in my life, just a perfect match for me for alcoholism. And again, you can't understand what it's like until you bury somebody. And I pass no judgment of her. She fought the best fight she could have fought with the tools she had. What did I learn? How can I take what I've learned and put it into my project, which is living undeterred and talk to people about these things and um, some of the really exciting projects I have coming up down the road the tour we did this summer, uh, the podcast I host. It's just, I'm 56 years old and I have to tell you, I'm in the best place I've ever been in my life, emotionally, physically, spiritually, financially, every aspect of my life. But it took me a long time to get here. I work hard every single day. A day doesn't go by that I take shortcuts. And that's where I'm at. That's my story. And, you know, it's something I don't try to run from. It's part of who I am. I'm proud of my story. But I still fight every day. There is not like a plateau that we reach that there isn't more to do after that. There's this idea that people have that we're supposed to get to the top of the mountain and then there's nothing else. We just sit at the top of the mountain. And that's boring. (laughs) Right? It really is. The living is what's fun. For me, my mission is to to spread as much love and joy and grace as I can around the world. And within that, you have to find the beauty in life. You have to find the living in life. And I think that is something that we miss in this process that people go through to get to the top of the mountain. I think what you're doing, Jeff, is so important. It's amazing that you have taken such a tragedy and turned it around and said, I'm not going to let this do to me what it did to my wife. I am not going to let what happened to my son not be a value to what I'm doing today. So I absolutely commend you and what you struggled through and what you have come through with it and said, this is what I want to do. So when you're living undeterred and you're traveling around the country, what is it that is your biggest passion in doing that? I'll tell you what I learned was that I never had a chance to stress test it. I think every human should be required in their life to take a period of time where you go on something like this without a sightseeing mindset, without a tourist mindset, not a consumer, but someone who's producing we don't do that. We go around, travel and sightsee and stuff. So I became very intentional about people. 
So I went around very open-minded. I made it very intentional not to make this a narcissistic journey around talking about Jeff Johnston and my story and blah, blah. I'm like, nah, I'm pretty bored of that right now. I want to talk about you. I want to hear about your story. And I realized every place I went, every gas station, every KOA we stayed at, every Walmart we hit at midnight, people would come up and see me because the mental health magnet, that's what I called our RV, living undeterred and mental health. What's living undeterred? And they'd go and I'd get these random texts and these emails of people saying, hey, I'm following you down the interstate. There was this groundswell of just excitement about mental health, which is so stigmatized as something taboo and kind of naughty to talk about. Why do we even call attention deficit a disorder? Why can't we just stop at attention deficit? You know why? Because if it's not a disorder, it's not a diagnosis. If it's not a diagnosis, we can't claim on insurance. So we have to put these words on for reasons that have nothing to do with the child that we're anointing as having a disorder. And this just infuriates me to no end. So in my bubble, no one's allowed to use the word disorder. My title is Trauma and Shame and Dis-Ease Recovery Transformational Guide. Yeah, not disorder. No, I'm not here to fix you. I'm here to guide you in some tools that will make your life a little bit more fun, a little bit more joyous, a little bit more loving, and a little bit more graceful. That's it. We need to question what our doctors are putting us on and why. And is there another tool that maybe we can and use? And why is it maybe the first there's option, something right? else we can try? I have no problem with pharmaceutically made meds as long as it's way down the list of options. With my son, he had issues at school. I started looking at my son's reports and it was like, oh, Seth is, doesn't pay attention. He doesn't take criticism well. And I'm like, well, okay, I, I don't either. But no one gave me medicine. My dad's a doctor and he never prescribed, would have been Ritalin back then. But that was like the first option for Seth. We never looked at anything else. And then when that got abused, then we saw a therapist. And that was a disaster. I sat in the first meeting and it was just Seth's, his mindset was very poor to go see a therapist. He went because we wanted him to go see a therapist. So I started looking at all this afterwards. It's like, I started thinking, okay, where are the areas that we could really focus on to build up mental health from within? So you can be self-assessing your mental health. You're not dependent on drugs and therapists and all that. You can learn these things within. That's where I'm at right now with living undeterred. Yeah. You definitely have to take all of those small little pieces, those small wins along the way and pat yourself on the back for those. Because if we ignore the fact that we have flaws, that we have things that aren't going to go right, that we have, you know, maybe we weigh too much or we have bags under our eyes or whatever it might be, we have to pat ourselves on the back and be happy and grateful that we have the ability to see that because that's not always something that we have. And then the expectation that we're not going to die or that it's never going to happen to us becomes a burden. Instead of being able to celebrate each other every single day. If you'd have met me six years ago, you'd be really surprised where I'm at today. I've really changed and it's, response to this question, do things happen to you or do things happen for you? And for me, it didn't happen overnight because I drank myself for 14 months, literally to death. But 
I finally realized that, hey, death can either be an opportunity or it can be a curse. And I just chose consciously to make it an opportunity. And then watching my wife, you know, self-destruct was more validation, not more woe is me, but more validation that I really need to take care of myself because my boys can't lose dad. My God, if they lose dad by things that I could have prevented, if a car hits me, that's one thing. But if I die of alcohol abuse or suicide or things like that, that I could have prevented. I, I don't know uh, how my boys would, um, that's asking a lot. Yes, it is. So I'm very careful taking care of myself. Good for you using that as a way to build yourself back up so that you didn't leave them behind. Well, I tell you where, Kristen, this is really important, Kristen, because when I meet parents that have lost their only child, they don't want, I'm sorry for your loss. That ship has sailed. My thoughts and prayers, that's a dead horse. What can I do to help you? Literally, is there something I can do? You want me to put you on my podcast? You can tell your story to all these people. Do you want to be a part of my tour next summer? Because we're going to do a mini tour again. Uh, we're going to, I don't know, 30 days this time, not 95. That almost killed me. Yeah. <laughs> 95 was a, I, I underestimated how much mental work that was going to be. But so in my advocacy, it's like, I have a real special place for people. And I do want to tell your followers and listeners, and I know you talk about this, Kristen, but there's a very toxic element in comparing grief. That's when someone says, well, I think Jeff's great. I really admire what he's doing, but I don't have kids and I'm never married. And I put my cat down yesterday. How can that be as painful as Jeff? Well, you know what it is? It is to you. Yeah. And that's one of the problems with comparing grief is that we compare successes too, but let's talk about the griefs. Just because somebody lost a child, that pain I have can be the same as your pain in something like putting down a pet, even though it seems so trivial. But for people who don't have kids, that is a kid. And if people aren't married, that's even more traumatic. So as a grief person now, that's kind of, I'm not a counselor, but for someone who talks to people, it's like, I need to be really aware of that. My story, when most audiences, people can't compete with that. In most audiences, I can talk in front of 200 corporate executives. There may be one in the audience that has lost a child and their wife or husband. So I can't come in with my story as a template for survival when most people can't relate to it. My story is relatable if you can pick and choose pieces out of it that make sense to you, but don't compare grief. Trauma and shame is the same way. Yeah, you're right. It doesn't matter what the trauma is. If I compare mine, and I called it comparing donuts. Oh, look at this donut. Isn't this just the best donut you've ever seen? And, and wouldn't you just love to be able to have some of this donut? But I'm not going to give you this donut. I want you to tell me about your donut and see if your donut matches my donut. So trauma is the same kind of way. And the more that you share this trauma over and over and over again, the more that you keep that trauma fresh in your mind. You keep that angst with yourself fresh in your mind. It's almost a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? It really is. Absolutely. And when you change your story, you change what your mission is going forward so that you can clear in order to do that. And I think that's exactly what you're doing with this living undeterred. You've let go of the trauma of the story so that you can bring forth the beauty 
of the loss, the beauty of the life that they led so that you can then give space to those other people. My quote is, pain is unavoidable, suffering is a choice. So for me, the pain of losing Seth, unavoidable. The pain of watching my wife do what happened to her, unavoidable. Suffering, it's a whole different deal. That's not unavoidable. That's a choice. I can mitigate it. I can control it. I can lean into it. I can fight it. I could drink it away. But the suffering part is the key. And uh, we focus too much on the pain. I live with chronic pain every day. I can make that your issue or I can make that my motivation. I have learned to use these things as inspiration. And so I talk about grief. Let's talk about that for a second. I've had some horrendous moments, as I know you have too, as anyone listening to this show has had horrendous moments. So recently then in December, I had my first brush with suicide ever in my life. After I buried my son and my wife and wrote a book and did a podcast and went around the United States, after all that, I thought about taking my life. And I learned it. I took shortcuts. I got kind of overconfident in my grief and so forth. So now when I start to feel the grief coming, I've learned now through a lot of different methods and tools to embrace that. And no matter what is going to happen, it's going to be an opportunity. There's no choice. You have to make it an opportunity. When I give my presentations, I talk to people. I say, when's the last time you ever cried? the hardest cry you've ever had and felt worse. When's the last time you went to the gym or worked out anytime, had a really good workout that you wanted to quit a million times. And when you were done, you're in the shower, washing your hair and you're going, damn, when's the time you ever thought, I wish I wouldn't have worked out. That's what I'm saying. It's like, why do we fight all this stuff? Why not make it an ally of our mental health? And so now if I am sitting there I'm driving my car and I hit a song and it comes on and it's like the other day, I, we had a, one of my workshops in Denver, the last workshop on our tour. And I'm by myself kind of getting ready. And over the intercom, guess what they play? My wedding song. And I just sat there thinking to myself, are you freaking kidding me? This is the last stop on the tour. And it's a half hour before everyone gets here. And you got to play my wedding song. Bring it on. And instead of just letting it just my shoulders going down and me getting all sappy and why me? You know, it's, I said, bring it effing on. I don't care. Have my wife walk in the door. I don't care. Bring. You can't trigger me. I'm not talking to anybody. I'm talking to myself. Instead of sitting there in that moment going, I can't believe it. How unfortunate. I thought, how fortunate timing. My wife is speaking to me right now. And I went and gave one of my best presentations I've ever given. I felt inspired. I felt motivated. But again, I felt the song was played for me, not to me. But you can do that all day. One of the exercises that we're doing in this challenge is writing a commercial. So an I Love Me commercial that I will say into my mirror every night for the next 21 days. I am humble as the student before I'm a leader. And that is just keeping the ego out of the way so that we can be this human to connect, to have these deep and meaningful conversations that maybe can help someone else in the service of, of what I do in my life and then what you do in yours. I never want to be in servitude, but I want to be in service as much as I can be for others. Yeah. And there's something about helping others 
that genuinely good feeling you get. I mean, the purest act of altruism is doing something without anyone knowing. And that's a practice in itself. Most people will donate money, they'll go to Facebook. There's a little self-narcissism involved in that. But if you can go do something charitable or something financially and benefit somebody and then just not tell anybody, I think there's a little power in that. Absolutely. There's power very much anytime that you can get out of your own way and help someone else. There's definitely some secret power in, in this conversation of, in podcasting to be able to maybe change a little bit of perspective for somebody, maybe give them a hour of grace which is really, to me, just gratitude and faith combined. Faith in yourself, faith in humanity, faith in you know, whatever you want to have faith in. I love you saying that because in my book, I make the comment that religion thinks they own the word faith. And it's like, faith can mean, I have faith that you're going to like this podcast that you'll actually post it. I have faith that you and I can collaborate down the road. I have faith that uh, someone driving in their car is going to actually go, holy crap, that's the best podcast I've heard in a long time. Right, exactly. I have faith in all that. <laughs> I have faith that I'm not going to die today in a car wreck. So that word faith, I think, is people feel like they own that word. And I, I, I do specifically write about that in the book. Because even when we talked about there, the moment about spirituality, it's very subjective. And even the word addict is subjective. And depression is subjective. I think so many of the issues that we want to compartmentalize into either or, or this and that is really a spectrum. I think we all have depression. Oh, absolutely. And we have, you know, it's all different levels. Mm -hmm. We all have the ability to be loving and caring. Everything's a sliding scale. I said, there's a lot of choice in some of that whether we want to be narcissistic or kind, whether we want to be as you did with your alcohol, say, I, I'm done. We can be addicted to thinking that our lives are great. We can be addicted to believing that we are better than someone else. We can be addicted to our religion. But yeah, I am big with the difference in spirituality and religion. And nobody owns the words. Those are free. In my book, I take the argument Let's say you're religious and you claim that you know your path after you die, the afterlife. If you're really good, you'll get rewarded. Thing called heaven. If you're not, you'll go to hell. And if God can't decide, he'll put you in a place called purgatory. It's like, let's say you know all that. Literally, God came down and told you all this. And I, that's awesome. I'm happy for you. But that shouldn't stop you from being, if anything, that should make you even more better human. It should really tell you if you're an blank on this planet, you're going to go burn forever. So I think your motivation to be good would be even better if you knew for certain there was a God. Now let's take the opposite. You're an atheist. You don't believe in afterlife, none of that stuff. What you do believe is this is all you got forever. This is your only day you're ever going to have. And so I would think that would want to make you be the best person you can possibly be. So why would it matter either or that you can't just be a good person? It's like, holy crap, can't we get over this? Religious people have morality, but atheists can't. Because if you don't believe in God, you can't have morality. I'm like, who said that? <laughs> well, how do you define morality? You know, it's like you go down these stupid rabbit holes and it's like, you know what? At the end of the day, you can believe in Gozar the Barbarian. I don't care. 
just be a good person to the elderly, to kids, to your neighbor, to your coworkers. Somebody rear ends you. Get out and see if they're okay. Don't get out and yell at them. It's like, geez, just come on, slow down, take a chill pill. It's like, if you believe in God, do the same thing. Why does it matter to you who I believe in anyway? If there is a heaven and I'm going to get rewarded for being a good person, then you know what? I think I'm going to heaven. I don't think that it matters. My kids asked me that once when they were little. Mom, are you going to go to heaven? Why wouldn't I go to heaven? I'm there. (laughs) I'm here. This is heaven. Yeah. It doesn't matter how many things I do in my life and the choices that I make. It matters that the choices that I make are in kindness. It matters that the choices that I make are in love. For my neighbor, for me, for whomever in the world. Instead of always trying to figure a way to convince somebody that you're right or to demonstrate to them they're wrong, why can't we just say, I understand why you feel that way? I understand the need to believe in the afterlife. The answer is a lot of questions. And I don't have any desire to try to tell somebody. All agnostic means is you just you admit you don't know. An atheist claims they know there isn't God. I'm not, I'm not an atheist. I just don't know. And so that lack of knowing is hard for people to do. So I see where religion fills that gap for someone that needs to have the peace of mind to know that there's more to this than just here. For me, I have to step back, give myself a moment, allow for whatever's going to come and then move forward. You know, it's far too many of us fight upstream, like in this canoe going against the current. And we wonder why we're so dissatisfied. There's a dynamic of this pursuit of happiness, which is an illusion to me because happiness itself is a fleeting emotion. You know, it's, it's a state of mind. It's like a balance statement on a, on a company's books. It shows your assets and liabilities in a moment in time. Well, that's what happiness is. It's something I don't think we really should be pursuing. We should be pursuing peace. Mm. There's a definition difference between the two. Peace is a, is a literal state of mind. It's not a moment in time. You achieve peace. I don't really look to get happy. I'm trying to find peace in my life. If I want to get happy, there's lots of ways I can get happy that last very short amount of time. And many of them are destructive. But it's hard to get peace in your life with things that are destructive. It's easy to get happy with things that are destructive. I think peace and joy run hand in hand. Yeah, joy is another. Yep, that's true. It's the vibration. It's the energetic vibration of joy. Not happy, joy. Yep. There's a difference. And I like that the peace because it's very similar. Yeah, I think they're two sides of the same coin. Give me the Reader's Digest version of what you do in regards to your 21-day I don't want to call it a course or... <laughs> yeah, it's a challenge. It's free. You know, you can hop on to um, com and it's sign up for the email. We'll send you all the information. It's really simple. There's a simple one sheet or there's a workbook if you want to get really in depth with it. But it's all about self-love and self-care. Finding that love for yourself inside. So you do three love letters once a week. This week, it's all about gratitude and and being grateful for yourself. And then there are seven mini dates that you take yourself on. 
It might be as simple as having a cup of coffee outside or in your favorite chair. It's up to you, whatever you want to reward yourself with. And then there is the 21 days of the I Love Me commercial. I know, that's interesting. Yeah, you write yourself a commercial on you know, who you are and how important you are. And I started off with, you know, Kristen, I'd like you to meet Kristen Sparks. She is an important person that you need to know. And then you go from there and you just do it in the mirror. You're actually looking at yourself and you're telling yourself how important you are, how good you are, how fabulous you are. What is important to you? Mine are, are love, joy, and grace. And so I say it's very important to me. I call myself sometimes every woman because I have been through almost everything that you could go through. There are some things that I have not. And I appreciate you sharing your triumphs and your valleys and peaks with us, Jeff, because it is an amazing journey that you have been on. And knowing that we're not by ourselves, knowing there are other people out there that have gone through this and then challenges that are harder than that. And we all have a story. I mean, someone asked me how this whole thing changed me to the core. And to me, I look at people now as a story. So when I meet you for the first time, first thing I see is a story. I look at a gas station guy. I look at a person in the grocery store. I look at a person on the street. I don't see a black person. I don't see a gay person. I don't see a sad person. I don't, I don't see a happy person. I see a story. I see somebody that's got, if I sat down with them like you and I have, we could have the best conversation ever with every single stranger on the planet. You're right. Everyone has stories. My favorite thing as a kid, I used to do this without my parents knowing, I would listen to Sunday night's stories on the radio. And I can't tell you the actual program because that was not what stuck in my head. It was just having the ability to put the radio under the blanket with me, with my flashlight. And I got to listen to these absolutely phenomenal stories. And I audio book crazy now. But I bet <laughs> it was great. That, that's one of my absolute favorite childhood memories. And that's what your podcast does. And that's what the rest of your mission is tries to incorporate is storytelling. And I think connection slash vulnerability slash storytelling slash empathy, you know, that's the glue that kind of holds everything together, you know? It is. It truly is. Thank you. I've enjoyed this immensely. I love talking about these things. I do too. I do too. Jeff, you are an amazing man. Thank you so much for sharing. And I hope you come back. Better yet, I'll get you on my show. Well, and we'll I would get to turn that. the tables and hear you talk more than me, which is the purpose of being a host. <laughs> You're allowing me to do most of the talking right? today. I appreciate it. <laughs> but I'll, I'll send you a Absolutely. link. We'll get you on the Living Unuttered podcast and we'll figure out kind of what got you to where you're at today. Let you share that. I would be honored to. Thank you. Well, consider it done. Well, this has been Roar with Sparks. How loud is your roar? And we have definitely heard how loud Jeff's are. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Thank you for what you do in the world. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Roar with Sparks. If you've enjoyed what you've heard today, please share it with a friend. And of course, rate, review, subscribe on your favorite podcast player. We can be reached at www.wrainc.com.
Thank you again, and we can't wait to see you here next week. How loud is your roar?